The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. We've been using the summers for special topics, different topics, what the Bible says about various issues that are important to our life in a very practical way, thematic. We've spent, uh, actually, last week we introduced what the Bible says about depression. And if you were not here last week, that was very important in terms of laying the foundation for what I say today. If at the end of the day, when I'm done preaching, you've got questions, could be some of your questions would be answered by part one, because we're going to be going a few weeks on this topic of what the Bible says about depression. So if you get a chance and you weren't here last week, you can listen to it online. That'll be helpful because it all goes together. It's a very complex issue and topic, what the Bible says about depression. And we'll probably go part three, part four, who knows, and we'll see how the Spirit of God leads because this is such a sensitive and important topic and it affects so many people. Uh, that's why it needs uh, the attention. We need to do it justice. The, we can't talk about what the Bible says about depression in a superficial, uh, myopic manner at all. That, that just is not fair. So hence, we'll spend a few weeks uh, dealing with it Culminating on the, really the, the solution to depression, God's answer and solution to depression, uh, ending on a high note and the note of hope and the promises of God because they are there, they are in Scripture. So today it's what the Bible says about depression, part two. Last week I said that not too many sermons we might hear about what the Bible says about depression, but there has been much written on the topic over the years, even from a Christian point of view. Um, I have a pastor friend, good friend of mine. His favorite book of all time is called Spiritual Depression, which was written by D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great eloquent expositor, uh, English expositor of the last century. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, very influential. Uh, preached the Word of God for decades and had a very influential ministry and pulpit. And he ended up preaching for 21 Sundays in a row on what the Bible says about depression. Now, that was not what he called it, but that was the theme, what the Bible has to say about depression. And that was so well received, so impactful, helped so many people that it was in great demand. And so they put it into a book and it's in print. We've had it available in the book cart for like seven years. Uh, called, it's called Spiritual Depression. And really it's talking about what the Bible says about depression. Great resource. I did not refer to that book as I've been preparing or studying it all. I just wanted you to know that there are written resources out there. That's just one of many. Uh, Jay Adams has written uh, over the years, for 50 years on this topic from a biblical point of view. Very helpful information. So I, in the future, I'll let you know more and more about uh, resources you can go to outside of what I talk about. So uh, be aware of that. Uh, just a summary re review from last week. We introduced this topic. We, I said that it was a, a very difficult topic to address because it was so complex. Um, one of the complexities is trying to find a definition that people agree on. You can search the web and hardly find everybody that anybody that agrees with the consensus on the actual definition and a couple of the experts on depression willingly admit that a universally accepted definition of depression is elusive. So that's part of the problem, agreeing on a definition. You can easily go to a website and find a definition you agree with. That's not the way to do it though. Um, so we talked about what is a legitimate definition of depression, especially from a biblical point of view. Uh, what also makes this so difficult is 
diagnosing depression and then agreeing on what the causes are and the cures. We haven't even got to that. That's points uh, five, six, and seven. I haven't got to that yet, but we will be talking about that uh, more and more. Uh, it's a sensitive and complex topic because so many people are confronted with the issue of depression. Uh, I read a statistic last week of the millions of people that are affected annually by depression in all of its forms. Um, I also uh, read that most people are affected by it from one degree to another. We are all subjected to depression at one degree or another at certain points in our life. I gave my own definition, summary definition of depression uh, for the purpose of the series of sermons we're going to do on it. So I gave that to you last week. And by way of summary, here's what my definition was last week. Depression is intense sadness, grief, or distress. Four, depression is to be deeply troubled in mind. Four, depression is to be emotionally distraught. And then finally I said, uh, to be depressed is to be overcome with hopelessness and loss of joy. So that's a fair distillation of depression. Primarily, my definition is coming from how we use it day to day in the vernacular. I'm not giving you a, a definition of depression that's a clinical, medical, narrow definition used by few secular psychiatrists and psychologists. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about common, ordinary depression that people deal with on a regular basis. Last week also, uh, before I even start, kind of by way of introduction, I talked about 20 top popular myths about depression. By the way, there are more than 20. Why did I stop at 20? Well, because we got to move on. Um, so I can't rehearse all of those now. But going back, some are more severe than others. Some are more destructive than others. Some are more misleading than others. Myths. I said popular myths because they're believed by a lot of people. It's pretty common. And like I said last week, you, you might even believe one or more of these myths. So if it challenged your thinking, that's good because we have to take our thinking and what we hear and put it through the grid of Scripture and biblical truth. So these were the 20 top popular myths about depression. Uh, I just want to highlight a couple that were, I think, the most deceptive, misleading, or possibly destructive. Uh, one of those was number seven I said last week, and that is that depression is not in the Bible. That's the whole point of what I'm preaching on. Probably one of the main things I want you to understand and take away when we are done after two, three, four, five weeks of talking about what the Bible says about depression is that depression is in the Bible. It is in Scripture. It is modeled in Scripture. It is seen in Scripture. Uh, people in the Bible struggled with depression. And even more than that, God is aware of depression. God gave attention to it. God diagnosed it. And God offers solutions to depression. So depression is in the Bible. I think of all the years that I've been counseling, I told you last week where I was talking to certain Christians and at times a Christian will say, well, depression is not in the Bible. And it shocks me every time I hear it because you got to get that one down. You can't move on in a diagnosis or seeking help from a Christian point of view if you can't agree to point number one, that depression is in the Bible. It is in the scriptures. And so we'll talk more about that. So that is huge. So the myth is, is when people say that depression is not in the Bible. Uh, another, just two that I want to emphasize out of those 20, uh, another myth is people when they say that guilt is a bad thing. 
And that, that would be um, the famous psychiatrist of the early 20th century who talked about him, and that was his whole view. That's how psychiatry started. And at the heart of it all was this guilt thing is a bad thing. We've got to get rid of that guilt. Whether it's talking through it and talking through it and ignoring it or blaming other people so you don't feel guilt anymore or other ways of escape, uh, getting away from the guilt, doing away with it. You just got to get rid of it. It's a bad thing. And I posited that no, guilt is not a bad thing. And we're going to look to Scripture to see why guilt is not a bad thing. As a matter of fact, guilt is a gift from God because guilt issues from the conscience. The conscience is what God gave human beings as a gift, as a kind of a thermometer or a barometer to test where you're at emotionally. It's just simply an indicator that something is wrong. So when you have guilt, that means that something is wrong. Your conscience is trying to tell you something and your conscience is either ill-informed or there's an issue that's out of kilter. So guilt is to the conscience as physical pain is to the body was the illustration we used last week. Uh, And like I said, there are many more um, myths that I could have highlighted. Here was another one, and I alluded to this last week at the very end. If you're listening carefully how I closed last week, I closed with Hebrews 4, which talked about Jesus Christ, our high priest, who when he became a man, he suffered, he underwent all of the temptations and trials that we do as human beings. Jesus Christ, the second person, the eternal second person of the Trinity, took on human flesh. And by taking on human flesh, he he took on human weakness. He took on human weakness. I will say that again. He didn't take on sin. He never sinned. He didn't have a sin nature. But he took on human frailty. He got tired. He got weary. He got thirsty. But he never sinned. And part of that, when he took on human weakness deals with this myth. This is myth number 21. I'll just add it because I'm going to talk extensively about this today because I didn't have time last week. So a popular myth is uh, people who say that Jesus never got depressed. I see that a lot. I saw it a lot in the uh, reading that I have done in preparing for this. Jesus never got depressed. That's a myth. That is not true. Jesus got depressed. We're going to look at it from Scripture in just a few moments. Um, But actually, so these three would probably be the most dangerous myths if I were to prioritize them, saying that depression is not in the Bible or addressed in the Bible, that guilt is a bad thing, or that Jesus never got depressed. The reason those are so dangerous and misleading, especially saying that Jesus never got depressed, is because it utterly takes all the force and promise away from Hebrews 4 that we read last week, that Jesus is our high priest, and in his weakness as the God-man, he identified with every struggle that we face and every temptation we face in life, yet he did it without sin. Jesus got depressed, and immediately... Uh, some might, that begs the question, well, then is depression a sin? And if I took a little survey now and asked you to write that down, yes or no question, is depression a sin? I guarantee you that some of you would say yes. I guarantee you that some of you would say no. Houston, we have a problem. See, can't we all just get along and agree on everything? And then maybe there's a third option where people say, well, I'm not sure, or it depends. And so this myth that Jesus never got depressed is vitally important. We'll look at it. By the way, that's a myth. It's actually a heretical view of Christ's nature going back all the way to the first century, first John, for a heretical view called Gnosticism, where they had a wrong view of Jesus and who he was in terms of his humanity. And then in the second century, it became developed in what is called a docetism, called seemism. Jesus just seemed to be a man in 
all of his attributes, but he really wasn't. And so he didn't really have all the emotions that we do. He was just God. And so this heretical view of Christ that Jesus never got depressed, Gnosticism, Docetism, some forms of hyper-Calvinism say the same thing. They want to emphasize the deity of a Christ over and against the humanity of Christ, and they don't have a proper balance. But Jesus is 100% man and humanity just as much as he is God. So we'll talk more about that because it is so important. Uh, so with that, by way of review, couple. now I want to start today uh, with some new points about d- depression. And just for our sake, I thought this would be helpful. This word depression, and this is important to me because I counsel people and work with people. And I was reading a book uh, written by a pastor. It's called Overcoming Depression, written by a pastor who's been pastoring for over 50 years. If you knew his na- if I, you'd know his name if I said it. He wrote this book about 20 years ago. It's on depression. It's very thorough. He wrote it about 30 years ago. And he said, the reason I'm writing this book is because as a pastor and a counselor, just about everybody that I counsel and see with problems struggles with one degree to another with depression. And as I talk to pastors and counselors, they say the same thing. Hence, this is an absolute priority. And he wrote an entire book trying to show how to deal with depression from a biblical point of view. Um, But again, he was struggling to define the word depression. But for our sake, here's the origin of that word depression. Because when you're sitting down with somebody and, okay, what's the problem? Well, I'm depressed. Or I have depression. Or I've been struggling with depression. Okay, well, actually, that really isn't helpful. That's kind of like somebody saying, well, I have a headache. I have a headache. When, When somebody says, I have depression or I have a headache, they're really just telling you a symptom. They are not diagnosing or delineating a cause for the problem. What they're saying is true. Yeah, I believe you do have depression. Yeah, I do believe you do have a headache. So this word depression, it's actually not a very helpful term to get a diagnosis, to get a cure. But we use it all the time. People use it all the time. I have depression. I struggle with depression. And really, when you're working with people, and for all the way from biblical counselors to pastors to counselors in the church to even psychologists and psychiatrists, when you say, or medical doctors, when you say I have depression, they have to keep probing and ask more questions to see, well, what are you really talking about and what is really the problem? We've got to get beyond this clunky, generic umbrella term called depression that really is not helpful for us at all. As a matter of fact, the word depression, it, it is imprecise. Like I said, it's generic. It's broad sweeping. It doesn't define anything. It's just simply telling us symptoms, not a real cause of what the problem is. And the best illustration I could think of is, I have a headache. I remember when I had problems with ongoing headaches, probably like 10 years ago. Couldn't get rid of them. I was losing sleep, and I was even kind of freaking out about it. It was affecting, I mean, it just became cyclical. Then your mind starts wandering, and you're thinking, oh, do I have cancer? Do I have a tumor? And then your mind just goes crazy. So we're all vulnerable to that. Then I started seeing doctors, and I just went through the gauntlet of doctor after doctor after specialist after specialist after specialist. And basically what they did was, okay, you don't have this, check, and then you hand hand you off to the next specialist. Okay, you don't have this, check, and they hand it off to the next specialist. Check, 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 check. So there was some relief in knowing, and then I could look at the list, okay, I don't have these 17 things. I don't have a brain tumor. I don't have uh, cancer that they know of. I don't have this. But they're just doing their duty and due diligence to make sure you don't have these things. But the point is, I have a headache. Well, why do you have a headache? You can have a headache for 50 gazillion reasons. 
You can have a headache because you're too hot. It's too hot in here. I've got a headache because my kids scream too loud and there's too many of them. I've got a headache because this driver in front of me is driving me crazy. I've got a headache because I've got a cold. I've got a flu. I'm feeling sick. Uh, I got pressure at work. I'm not getting along with uh, some colleagues. And I've got cancer. There's so many reasons that can contribute to the reality. I have a headache. The problem is diagnosing why you have the headache. That is the struggle in dealing with people who have depression. What do you mean by depression? What is causing it? What is the real source? Therein lies the challenge. So our this clunky term, how did we get it? Everybody uses it all the time. Well, it comes from the old French, as far as we know, or the medieval Latin. Depression. I never took French, but I just thought I'd give it a shot. Uh, first quote used as a state of dejection or emotional dejection for the first time around 1425. 1425 is when it filtered and trickled into our language, our glossary bank. And literally back then it meant put de- to put down by force and to be overcome. To be put down by force emotionally, mentally, spiritually, psychologically, and even physically. Man, when I hear that, I can just, all I think of is the Psalm of David we read last week. The guilt of his sin and God was pushing down on him. So that's where the word depression comes from, all the way from 1425. And it was used by the common people. It wasn't used as a definitive clinical term in 1425. It wasn't used for a very narrow, myopic medical definition in 1850, but it was used in the vernacular among the common people. It was like newspaper language. I got depression, they got depression, we're dealing with depression, I've got a bout of depression, and everybody knew what they meant. It was a summary term. Going back to the quote there on the history of the word depression, uh, first used as a state of emotional dejection in 1425, but the formal clinical sense used in psychology of this term, did not appear until 1905, which coincidentally coincides with the rise of Sigmund Freud and his whole view. And ever since then, that term has become more and more precise and defined and medical and secular and nuanced and narrow and I would say not helpful. So that's kind of the origin development of the word depression. And like I said, it's a very today it's a very broad word that people use, generic, imprecise term when used by people. It's non-technical. It's open-ended. It's ill-defined. It's more describing a symptom than defining a clear diagnosis. And I gave you my definition last week. What are we talking about when we talk about depression? Oh, by the way, today, if you look at all the clinical, medical, psychological, psychiatric, uh, medical health professional journals who are supposed experts on clinical depression, and they're very narrow definition that we saw last week is hardly a definition but merely describing symptoms they say you have to have it for two weeks the journal after journal kept saying well what does two weeks have to do with it well i'd say absolutely nothing you can be depressed for three days and say i had depression uh i think about the what the bible says about depression the first thing that came to my mind as i was thinking about that this morning is wow there were some times i was depressed this week i don't know about you don't raise your hand but anybody out there did you get depressed this week i did 
Um, so I could say I had bouts with depression this week. I don't think a week goes by where I don't. So the time frame or the length of how long it endures has nothing to do with a definition of depression or a biblical definition. Okay, let's go to your handout because I want to fill in some blanks there. And I'm going to use those. I'm actually going to talk about three points at the same time because they all intersect with each other. So point number one from last week is that the Bible talks about depression. Uh, number two, which I'm going to give you from the book of Psalms, biblical words for depression. There's more than one. To say that depression uh, is represented by only one word is, is wrong. It is superficial. It is myopic. It's just not legitimate. And then number three, there is debate about the definition of of depression. I've already talked about that. Talk about it just a little bit more. There's debate about the definition of depression. So I want to start at number two and then I'm going to go back to point number one with uh, something that I brought up a little earlier. Let's go to point number two, biblical words for depression. This is just a sampling. There's no way you can write these 52 words down right now. You can't write that fast. But just know that I started reading through the Psalms very carefully looking for the psalmist. Was he in a state of depression? Was he struggling with depression? And if he was, what were the words that he used? What are the synonyms for depression that he used? Uh, remember, for the most, these are written in the Hebrew language. So the word depression doesn't exist in the Hebrew language, but it exists in meaning through many different Hebrew words that we translate into English. And so some of these words are even different based on your English translation because we have a zillion English translations today. So I was going with the NASB kind of as the standard and then the ESV, the New King James, the NIV, if they gave alternative views. But for the most part, all the major English translations were using the same words. Every once in a while, there was a synonym. So... Here are all, and this is just Psalm. So this week I was reading through the Psalms very slowly, very carefully, very precisely, at times stopping to look up the Hebrew word, what it meant, where it's used in other passages in the Bible. And I didn't get through all 150 Psalms. I only got to Psalm 69. So I've got to keep plugging away. So here we go. Here are the synonyms of words to use for the idea of depression in the Bible. This is just the book of Psalms, starting in chapter 4 all the way to chapter 69. Distressed. That was one of the most common ones. It's a synonym for being depressed. In Hebrew and in Greek, distressed. Psalm 5, groaning. Sighing. And th these are all the psalmists talking about how they feel, what they're struggling with, their battle. They are in emotional torment is the context of all of these psalms. And these are the descriptive words that the psalmist is using to describe his state of mind, his state of being, even his physical condition at times. Distressed, groaning, sighing, pining away, faint. Do you ever get so depressed or distressed that you feel faint? Um, Psalm 6, my soul is greatly dismayed, in anguish, oppressed, troubled, grieved, vexation, afflicted. 
And afflicted wasn't physical affliction. It was afflicted in mind, afflicted in emotion, afflicted spiritually. Sorrow in my heart all the day. Psalm 13, 2. Sorrow in my heart all the day. Another English translation says sorrow in my heart day after day, day after. That sounds like depression, doesn't it? By the way, this was a believer. Sorrow. Suffering. Psalm 22. Loneliness. I'm, I'm struggling with depression. I'm feeling depression. Well, what do you mean? Well, I'm battling with this feeling of loneliness. Well, that's right in the Bible. Loneliness is a synonym for depression. Anguish. Psalm 25 or 31 7. The anguish of my soul. Troubled heart. Psalm 25 17. Crying. Dismayed. Wailing. Broken. Psalm 32 4. My strength was sapped. Sapped strength, sapped energy. Here's this one uh, that we've heard, Psalm 32, 4. Your hand was heavy upon me. Your hand was pressing down on me. That's literally what depression means, to be pressed down from guilt in, in this case. Fearful, anxious, mourning, my forlorn soul, forlorn, weeping, fretting, Psalm 38, 3 through 4, the psalmist says this, Because of my sin, my guilt has overwhelmed me. I feel overwhelmed. That's a synonym for depression. Because of my sin, my guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. So there's three synonyms right there. Overwhelmed, burdened, heavy. Bowed down, very low, utterly crushed, feeble, Psalm 38.10. I remember, uh, I've heard people, Christians, say that panic attacks aren't in the Bible. Listen to this one, Psalm 38.10. You should read the whole Psalm 38. This guy's in trouble. He is depressed. He is discouraged. He has bipolar depression. He has every form of depression you could think of. Not only that, he even talks about it, how it affects him physically. In verse 30, uh, 10 of verse, chapter 38 of Psalms, he says, My heart pounds. That's a panic attack, among other things. Mute. He describes how he's so downcast. He doesn't feel like talking to anybody. Mute. I don't want to talk. Pain, internally and externally. My heart grew hot within me. Wow. So overcome with distress that my heart grew hot within me. Overcome, wasting away, perishing dying. I remember somebody that I was talking to in counseling years ago, 10, 15 years ago, and talking to them and the, they were, the way they were describing their depression, they literally felt like they were dying and going to die imminently. They were so overcome with depression. And that's what the psalmist says. Overcome, wasting away, perishing, dying. In the pit. Wait, what a great biblical description of depression. You, don't you feel like you're in the pit? Weak. On his sick bed, ill, that's one of the symptoms or signs of severe depression. You're so depressed, you can't even get out of bed. You just feel sick. You want to be sick. Well, it's right there in the Psalms. On his sick bed and ill, and he is describing not physical sickness uh, because of a cold. It is rooted in how he feels and how he's thinking in spiritual warfare. Downcast. Despair of soul, disturbed soul, Psalm 42. Shame, disgrace, 
Psalm 55, 2, my thoughts trouble me and I am distraught, restless, distracted, heart terrors, heart terrors, that's interesting, Psalm 55, trembling, horror, lamenting, lamenting tears. 69, he says, I am worn out. I am worn out. Doesn't that sound like somebody who's struggling with depression and has been for quite some time? Another one, I'm drowning. I'm drowning in a flood of turmoil. Anyway, so that's just the first 69 chapters. Those are just some biblical words of depression. There are more in the New Testament we haven't even looked at. So that's why you can't be superficial when you're talking about depression or diagnosing yourself or trying to help somebody else. You've got to dig deeper. What is the problem? What is causing this? Which takes us back, let's go back to number one then. The Bible talks about depression. So when you're diagnosing a problem biblically, probably one of the main things that people struggle with is when they say that something is not in the Bible, a problem is not in the Bible. Just every time that I can think of, when they say that, the reason it's not in the Bible is because they're so locked in on a certain terminology. Depression is not in the Bible. Well, in the 69 chapters that I read of Psalms, I did not see the word depression in the English translation, but those words are definitely synonyms of depression. So you can't say that depression's not in the Bible just because that word depression doesn't show up in the Hebrew of the Psalms. Or abortion. Abortion's not in the Bible. Well, the word abortion, yeah, yeah, it's not. But the truths relevant related to abortion is clearly in the Bible. Babies, pregnancies, God opening the womb, life, uh, murder, on and on. It's all there. It is in Scripture collectively. So the same is true about depression. The Bible talks about depression. Okay, two footnotes, then I want to look at uh, Matthew 26. So you can turn your Bible to Matthew 26. And here's a couple of footnotes. You've got to get the Christian to realize, believe, and understand and take uh, solace in the fact that the Bible talks about depression, talks about it thoroughly, completely. Uh, it is illustrated through godly people. All these people who struggled with the depression in the Psalms were believers all throughout the Old Testament. All these believers, they struggled with depression. They talked about it. They prayed about it. Uh, they struggled with it. Uh, it's people of all ages, so it's not uh, partial to age um, or any demographic, really. So examples abound. It's all over Scripture. And if you just remember that the Bible is God's thoughts written down, this is what God thinks. God thinks. God has something to say about depression. God made every human being in His image. God knows people better than anybody. He knows them better than psychologists and psychiatrists. God is the creator of us all. He knows us in and out. He knows the very hair, hairs on our head. He knows uh, everything about us. And as a result, because He is the creator of us, we're accountable to Him. He is omniscient. He knows everything. He's all-powerful. God knows about depression. And He's addressed it in His Word. So Scripture is sufficient. So if you're going to, as a Christian, you're going to take the view that, well, depression's not in the Bible, then you're actually undermining the important doctrine of sufficiency of Scripture. We believe in the sufficiency of Scripture here at this church. That means that the Bible, all 66 books, contain everything we need to know from God for all of life and all of godliness to deal with all of our problems. So I can go with confidence to God's Word, to Scripture, the living Word of God, to, with confidence, counsel fellow believers that God has an answer. God has a solution. God made a promise. There's victory in salvation in Christ. The Bible addresses everything that we need to talk about. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, God has given us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. 
life. And that means every issue that we face in life relative to what it means to be a human and to godliness, everything relative to growing in Christ-likeness on the spiritual plane. Everything, including depression. So the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture is at stake. Go to Matthew chapter 28, or chapter 26. This is Jesus' last week. Actually, it's his last night of life. He's with the disciples. He sits down for the Passover meal. He turns that into communion. He exposes Judas as the betrayer. He dismisses Judas. Eleven apostles are remaining. Uh, in Matthew chapter 26, uh, Jesus, now when evening had come, he was reclining at the table, or he was reclining probably on the ground with the twelve disciples or the apostles. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. Man, what a startling, shocking statement. They were not ready for that. He just spoiled dinner. Don't bring bad bad news to the table. Well, he did. One of you is going to betray me as he's about to break bread. Verse 22, and being, get this, deeply grieved, emotionally overwhelmed were the apostles when he said that. It is emphatic. Deeply grieved. And they panicked. Panic. Talk about a panic attack. The end of verse 22. Surely not I, Lord. That's a panic attack. Deeply grieved. Verse 23, and then he answered and said, the one who... So then he exposes Judas. Judas is dismissed. Uh, look at verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread. Take this, eat it. He institutes the new covenant that we celebrate at communion. Then verse 30, they sang a hymn afterwards in worship. Verse 32, but after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Verse 33, Peter answered and said, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And then uh, Jesus rebukes Peter and says, no, you're going to fall away. Verse 36, then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. So now Jesus goes with the 11 to the Garden of Gethsemane where he's going to pray just before his death. Here's the key, verse 36 through 38. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Verse 37, Jesus took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to, here it is, began to be grieved and distressed. It was continual. He was overcome with grief and being distressed. Verse 38. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. That's depression. And I'm just telling you, no human being has ever experienced this depth of depression in their life what christ experienced here that's why hebrews 4 12 through 15 is so important he was subjected to everything that we were yet he did it without sin my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death remain here and keep watch with me one popular english translation english translation puts it this way then he said to them my soul is very sad and deeply grieved so that i am almost dying of sorrow verse 37 and taking with him peter and the two sons of zeppity He began to show grief and distress of mind and was deeply depressed. That's what the English translation says. That is totally legitimate of the Greek word being used of Christ. He was depressed, grieved in light of all those biblical terms, the biblical definition. Jesus identifies with us. That is so important to tell a Christian who is overwhelmed with depression, thinking they're never going to get out of this pit. I can't get out of this pit. Yeah, you can. Are you a Christian? Yes. Are you sure? Yes. Okay, then there is hope for you. And it starts with Jesus Christ and your relationship with him. He identifies with you. He has been there. He was subjected to it. He overcame it. He blazed a trail for you and for me as the children of God. 
there are some people who just don't believe that Jesus got depressed because they think that means he sinned. No, he didn't sin, but he was depressed. One commentator puts it this way. Of this incident in Matthew 27, Jesus' purpose when he took the three disciples with him to have them pray with him wasn't to minister to them as much as for them to watch him and pray with him and so also that he could teach them how to take your burdens to the Father. And so that's what Jesus was trying to do vividly that in his humanness, even the divine Son of God needed the sustenance of his heavenly Father. Get this, fallen sinful humanity refuses to acknowledge its weakness, but the unfallen sinless Son of Man well knew his human weakness. Jesus had human weakness, not sin. Don't get that confused. Jesus knew his own human weakness. When he became flesh and dwelt among men as a man, he accepted the weaknesses that are common to all humanity. He experienced the weaknesses of hunger, thirst, pain, and temptation. And now he was about to experience the supreme human weakness, death. In acknowledging his human weakness and his consequent need for his heavenly father's presence and strength, Jesus did what the disciples saw no need for doing. It was because he looked to his father that he endured and passed every temptation, including sin bearing and even death itself. Jesus' ministry began and ended with with relentless temptation directly by Satan. Uh, The author goes on. Uh, As Jesus went into the garden with the three disciples, Jesus began to be grieved and distressed. It was not that he had never experienced grief or distress over sin and death and over the isolation from his heavenly father they would bring. He had always known that he had come to earth to suffer and die for the sins of the world. But the climax of his anguish now began to intensify as never before as his becoming sin in our place and his consequent engagement from God drew near. His very soul was repulsed by the encroachment of sin bearing, not because of the physical pain as much as taking on sin. But now a very deep and desolate kind of loneliness began to sweep over Jesus that caused him to be severely distressed. In addition to the cross uh, were personal disappointments that perhaps pressed Jesus into deeper depression. So says Pastor John MacArthur, admitting the weakness of Jesus, that Jesus got depressed, as we saw in our text. With that, go to Hebrews chapter 4. And I want to close again on this amazing verse. But hopefully now it's got fuller meaning. Because in verse 15 when it says that Jesus was tempted in all things, that means he was subjected to all of human temptation. He was a, he was a 100% human being. Jesus had the full gamut of emotions that we do. Uh, depression has everything to do with your emotions and my emotions. Everything. And Jesus was an emotional being. Jesus was an emotional being before he took on a human body. So he was subjected to distress, frustration, agony, affliction of soul, affliction of mind, all these temptations that came his way. He was depressed. He never sinned in his depression. He dealt with depression the right way, going to the Father for all of his comfort, all of his solutions, all of his resources. That's why he's the great high priest that we are to model, that we are to follow, that he intercedes for us, that he wants to help us. And he's where we find solace. And so with that, the great high priest, Jesus, who can identify with all the struggles that we deal with in life, even the most severe ones like depression, regardless of whatever degree it is, mild to severe and clinical. 
Jesus the Savior is the answer. Verse 14, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. He can. He knows our pain. He knows our struggles. He identified with them experientially. We don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. You know what this verse is saying? If you have depression and you're dealing with depression, you're battling with it, and you're a Christian, step number one, go to God. Go to God in prayer. Go to the Father. Go to Jesus. Talk to the Trinity. That's where you start. That's the biblical way. That's what Jesus wants us to do. Let us, therefore, means this is what you should do as a result of this great truth. Because Jesus is the great high priest, because He is the God-man, because He rose again and ascended on high, because He reigns on high as the great high priest for His beloved children, because of that great and true reality, and He can sympathize and He knows everything that we struggle with, and He is the end. Therefore, because of that, do this. That's what therefore means in verse 16. Let us, us is Christians. We're going to talk about unbelievers who have depression because there's a totally different solution for them. I'm talking about believers right now who struggle with depression. Let us, as who are believers, the children of God who know Jesus personally, therefore, in light of the great truth of 14 and 15, because of Jesus is draw near, come close. That terminology is very specific. This is a great privilege we have that saints in the Old Testament didn't have. Only the high priest in a certain line with qualifications and especially one time of the year could draw near to the very presence of God in the tabernacle and in the temple. Anybody else try to do it? The death penalty. But there's a new day, a new glorious day because of Jesus, our high priest, that any believer, male, female, regardless of your age now, you can draw near, not just once a year, at any time, any time. How far is the infinite God away? He is only a prayer away. Isn't that amazing? He is only a prayer away. Let us who are believers, therefore, draw near with confidence, not arrogance, not a lack of humility, not pride, but with confidence, with certainty, with assurance. God wants us to have assurance. Draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Notice it's not the judgment seat. It's the throne of grace. The throne of grace, the throne of goodness, the throne of mercy, the throne of blessing, the throne of understanding. That is the throne of Jesus Christ. It's just a prayer away. You know, there are some authorities we could go to. They have authority, but it's not a gracious authority. It's, and we're actually, in, in, I don't want to go talk to them. They're scary. They're mean. They're unkind. They abuse their authority. They're not going to be gracious. They're just going to mete out justice and judgment. Not so with Christ. With confidence, we go to His gracious throne. In order that, for the purpose of, that we may receive mercy. There it is. We may receive mercy. From Jesus, from the Father, from the Spirit. And we may find grace to help in the time of need. When you are wallowing in despair and in depression, that is a time of need. This is a promise from God that is guaranteed to you if you're a Christian. If you know Jesus Christ, this is the solution. We're going to talk more about this. So did you have a, a, a roadblock this week? Did you have a downturn? Did you step into the pit? Were you in despair? Did you have a trial? Did you have sadness? Did you have distress? I did! And 
I did this too. I knew that nobody could help me. Friends who love me, couldn't, they can't help me with this. Family that loves me, they can't help me with this. Fellow pastors who know a lot, they can't help me with this. There's only one who can help me with this. It is the triune God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the indwelling spirit. I need to go to him for mercy and grace. Here's the good news. He answered my prayer. He listened. He comforted me. He restored me for the time. As I am frail and weak, and I guarantee uh, I'm going to have another time of being distraught and distressed, as we all do. So that's the good news. The Lord Jesus, He is there with open arms at the throne of grace. With that, let's go and pray to Him and thank Him for being such a gracious Savior who can sympathize with us. Father, we do thank You for our time together to worship You, to learn from You. God, thank You for the reality of Your Word. We don't even understand the power of it, but thank You for the power of it, that it is living, that You use the Holy Spirit to impress it upon our soul, to feed us, to nurture us, to help us recoup God, I pray that you would go before us with your awesome Holy Spirit, encouraging every believer today in light of the great promise that we just heard from Hebrews 4 of what a fantastic, awesome, gracious, and merciful high priest you are who loves your children and wants to extend grace and mercy. And all we have to do, Lord, is ask and pray in faith. Thank you for that wonderful promise. We claim it as our own. God, go before us. You deserve all the glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650 630 0009.